Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Jeff Klinkenberg, author of the book Alligators in B-Flat. There were so many uh, people who have who've had these impacts, some small, some large, but just kind of living the Florida life. We'll discuss court documents regarding several slave ships seized in Pensacola in 1818. All three ships were actually bound for American ports for either Mobile uh, or they were heading um, further over to, uh, to Louisiana uh, territory. But what's interesting is what their cargo consisted of. And we'll hear about the Great Southern Cracker Roadshow. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Lincolnberg's latest collection of essays about Florida culture is called Alligators in B-Flat, Improbable Tales from the Files of Real Florida. The book is published by the University Press of Florida. Jeff Klinkenberg has been writing for the Tampa Tribune since 1977. He grew up in Miami after his family moved to Florida from Chicago in 1951. Well, it was after the war, and of course a lot of people who had been GIs were coming to Florida. They'd discovered it, you know, uh, in the Army. But that wasn't the case of my dad. My dad was a musician. He was a piano player. And he thought that Florida was going to be like the, the new paradise for musicians. Probably a little less competition, but it was a place where you might come and become a star. So he gave it a shot for about five years, but like 99.9% of musicians in the world, uh, he had to get a day job. But uh, when my parents moved to Florida, though, I mean, my dad fell in love with Florida. And uh, with him, it was fishing and camping. And so that was my introduction. That's how I got my toe into, into Florida, through fishing. Uh, my mother and I always, the, the astonishing Beatrice Mary Grace O'Donnell Klinkenberg, she was quite the character. Uh, she hated everything about Florida, especially, especially the cockroaches. But... What she did have was that Irish gift of gab and storytelling. And so I kind of grew up hearing her, her brother, who would come and visit, just telling these tales, some tall, some true. And so I learned, you know, I valued storytelling. Uh, 
So there I was, uh, kind of enamored by Florida, uh, especially natural Florida, and, and then storytelling. So it was, I had the perfect parents. Jeff Klinkenberg's love of the natural Florida started early and soon expanded into a fascination with the state's history and culture. And I grew up in Miami, and when I was a kid, I mean, I would, you know, I'd read the fishing, the Vic Dunaway, who was the outdoors editor of the Herald. But they also had these people, uh, all newspapers in Florida, not just newspapers in Miami, usually had somebody who sort of interpreted Florida for readers. And the Herald had a guy when I was growing up called Nixon Smiley, who wrote a Florida column. Uh, the Stewart News had a guy named Ernie Lyons, who was one of the greats. And uh, eventually the Herald had Al Burt, who was one of my heroes and a great influence on me and someone who really, when I started writing about Florida culture was in the late 80s, and Al was kind of slowing down, and he, you know, he had some uh, physical handicaps, and he was basically about done, and he was really encouraging about me carrying on that tradition of, of, of interpreting Florida. And I'm the last of my kind. I kind of feel that way. I mean, there's just nobody doing what I do anymore. Uh, I'm 64. The whole the newspapers are changing. We're much smaller. Someone like me is considered a luxury. Uh, so I'm lucky to to be working at a you know a big newspaper like the Tampa Bay Times that says, go out there and find something interesting. With his focus on the natural Florida, people often expect Klinkenberg to be in agony over the current state of our natural resources. While he acknowledges that there are big challenges facing Florida's natural environment, Klinkenberg believes there have been noticeable improvements over the past several decades. When I was a kid, and I grew up down in South Florida on the edge of the Everglades, we didn't see that many alligators. And they had been hunted really hard for many years. So... They were, still, they were still down there, but they were kind of wily. They did not present themselves, didn't come into the open like they do now. And, of course, eventually they were on the endangered species list. They've been protected, and now we've got a couple million. So something that we take for granted now was a pretty rare sight when I was a kid. Same with crocodiles and, uh, and panthers. I mean, you get panthers all the way up into Georgia now, and it's exciting. So there are a lot of things. The water Tampa Bay is cleaner than it was in the 1970s when I moved to that area. Now, I'm not a Pollyanna. I don't want people to think there's nothing that's putting Florida at risk because there are many things that are. Uh, invasive species, plants, animals like the, like the python, um, foolish development. I mean, there's all these threats. But uh, there are some things that have gotten better because of the hard work of lots of Floridians. In his essays, Jeff Klinkenberg travels the back roads of Florida, visiting remote places and people that are uniquely Floridian. Klinkenberg explains the title of his latest book, Alligators in B-Flat. The title essay of Alligators in B-Flat, which I wrote in 2007, came from this national public radio story I heard about uh, B-flat, the note of nature. And it was actually a, an astronomy story about how 
black holes in outer space supposedly emitted this low tone that if you could hear it, it would be a low B-flat. And this reporter mentioned in passing that in the 40s, the Museum of Natural History in New York, someone uh, discovered by accident, somebody hitting a pipe with a, a wrench, uh, that turned out to be a low B-flat, uh, these alligators that were in the basement in, in pits started bellowing and did it again. Hey, they did it again. Wow, what note is that? Well, it's B-flat. And I thought, when I heard that radio story, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to see if I can duplicate that? So I made this phone call. Um, this guy named Bill Mickelson answers. I said, Bill, I said, I know you're the principal tuba player at the Florida Symphony. Yes, that's right. I said, I know um, you have a master's degree in music from Yale. Yes. I know your, your, your music has appeared on many classical music CDs. Yes. I said, but I've got a question for you. How would you like to come to Gatorland with me and play your tuba for alligators? He said, yeah! You know, like it, he'd been waiting for this question his whole life. So we did. And he brought one of his students from the New England Music Conservatory. And we set up this experiment. And the, the, the curator at Gatorland was sort of amused that we were going to try this. And it took us a while. But when we figured it out, this whole place exploded with alligators male alligators bellowing in this low B flat. In addition to writing about alligators, sea turtles, and iguanas, Klinkenberg introduces his readers to fascinating people who he says belong in Florida. I have an essay in, in uh, Pilgrim in the Land of Alligators about a guy called the Thunder Man. And he's a guy who called me up five or six years ago, and all he wanted to do is talk about thunder. This kind of thunder, that kind of thunder, uh, lightning, and I said, well, I enjoyed this, but I, you know, I need to get going. You know, a couple days later, he calls me up. Again, he's obsessed by thunder. So, and told me he was recording it. He liked to record thunder. And so I ended up going to his house. And thunder is his obsession. Turned out, interestingly, he's blind. But he's made these recordings over the years that have ended up in movie soundtracks and stuff like that. So his life is all about thunder. Other states, of course, have thunder. It's not like it's in a u unique to Florida, but uh, it's, it's special to Florida. Jeff Klinkenberg also writes about Florida icons who he's had the opportunity to meet, including folklorist Stetson Kennedy, writer Albert, and environmentalist Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Well, I knew Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. I grew up in Miami and uh, certainly knew of her work. And finally, in uh, in the 90s. I mean, she was one of my heroes, but sometimes you're afraid to meet your hero because you don't want your hero to be a jerk. And she was pretty tough. She, she was kind of, you know, she was uh, kind of imperialistic and she was daunting and she was, you know, she was from New England and, you know, that's a stupid question, my dear. I mean, she told one of my reporter friends that once. But I finally got to meet her. And then... 
And she was 102 years old when I finally met her, spoke in perfect paragraphs. And I ended up, uh, she actually lived six more years. She, she died 108, but she put the, the modern Everglades on the map with a book called Everglades River of Grass that came out in 1947, just when the Everglades became a park. And not that she was an outdoors woman, she wasn't. She liked her Desmond and Duff's scotch, but I had some memorable talks with her. And then we corresponded for quite a time. And I still have those, those letters tucked into my Marjorie Stoneman Douglas books. So she was certainly, she and Stetson were two big ones. Bill Host, uh, growing up in South Florida, uh, he was the reptile man down there, like Ross Allen was the reptile guy in North Florida at Silver Springs. I didn't know Ross, though I did see him perform a number of times when I was a kid, but I did know Bill Host, who had a place called the Miami Serpentarium. And while I didn't become a herpetologist, I was fascinated by snakes because of him. And he, he died a couple of years ago. He was 100. He, he, uh, he had been bitten, I want to say, 149 times by venomous snakes in his life. He survived two bites, bites uh, by king cobras and died of old age. Gosh, there were, there were so many uh, people who have, who've had these impacts, some small, some large, but just kind of living the Florida life. Jeff Klinkenberg has been living the Florida life and writing about it since the 1970s. His latest collection of essays about Florida is called Alligators in B-Flat, Improbable Tales from the Files of Real Florida. The book is published by the University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, explore our educational resources, shop for great books, and listen to archived editions of this program. To receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, click on the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Educational Resources Coordinator of the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here documents from the U.S. government regarding several ships that were captured in Florida waters in 1818. Oh, that's right. So back in uh, uh, mid-1818, June actually, of, of 1818, three uh, American ships, they were American registered ships and they were uh, manned by U.S. sailors, 
sailed into the harbor in Pensacola uh, and were captured, actually, by U.S. forces. What's interesting about these three ships is what they were carrying. Um, all three ships were actually bound for American ports, for either Mobile uh, or they were heading um, further over to, uh, to Louisiana uh, territory. But what's interesting is what their cargo consisted of. Um, they were carrying slaves. All three ships were carrying um, uh, African slaves from Havana, Cuba, uh, and rather than going directly to U.S. ports, uh, they ended up in in Pensacola, uh, and then were were subsequently captured by uh, by U.S. forces within Pensacola Harbor. Now, Florida was still a Spanish territory in 1818. Explain what the U.S. government was doing invading Pensacola at this time. Yeah, that's right. That's really what makes this particular case uh, very interesting. Uh, so in 1818, uh, and actually eight, late 1817, early 1818, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Jackson, <laughs> who we now generally know of as our, our seventh president, was a, a general at that time. And he was instructed, he was given very ambiguous instructions by the uh, President Monroe to pursue uh, Creek and Seminole Indians and also runaway slaves, pursue these people into uh, a sovereign country, you know, a sovereign territory, which was then Spanish Florida, um, in order to capture runaway slaves. Because at the time, there were a lot of border issues between American settlers and some of the Creek and Seminole Indians. Uh, a lot of uh, these early American settlers were complaining that slaves were running away into Spanish Florida and the Spanish were harboring these slaves. Uh, so Monroe sent Jackson, uh, again, with very ambiguous uh, 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 instructions. He didn't necessarily tell him to take Pensacola, but he said do what was necessary to pursue these um, these groups. Uh, and Jackson took it upon himself to uh, not only pursue these people and destroy a few settlements and forts, but also take the city of Pensacola. Uh, he, he marched U.S. forces in uh, into the city in May, and, and uh, Pensacola surrendered really without a shot because it was a very small um, military Spanish military presence in Pensacola. Uh, so they gave up uh, the problem was that Jackson left, and he left an occupying force in Pensacola. So there was sort of a power vacuum uh, in June, shortly after, uh, and, and unbeknownst to the, the captains of these ships, uh, they were sailing into what was now essentially a U.S. port, um, and they were carrying slaves, which at that time had become illegal. So the, the United States had banned the importation of African slaves into U.S. ports. And it also became a crime for an American ship to be carrying these these slaves into the port. So that's where it really starts to kind of muddy the water. and We start to uh, get into the, the, the vagaries of... of um, of what do we do? Um, so we ended up going to the uh, the district of Alabama, uh, district court of Alabama, um, and they essentially said that well, uh, what we have to do because they were the, the slaves were essentially being traded by Spanish citizens um, from a Spanish port in Havana to what they thought was another Spanish port in Pensacola, uh, and were going to be sold to Spanish citizens living within um, uh, West Florida that they couldn't necessarily capture and, and take those slaves. The problem was. Um, they had already confiscated the slaves and they had already sold <laughs> some of these slaves, but the slave owners were, were uh, recuperated. And that's a document that we have here. This was a, actually a document from the, the U.S. Treasury Department. So they had to recuperate the, uh, the losses that were incurred by these slave owners. And it amounted to about $60,000. Uh, so there was quite a bit um, of, of slaves. There were almost 100 people on board one of the ships uh, when, they were, when they were captured. But it's interesting, too. There, 
the, the problem was it actually they, they appealed to the um, the U.S. Supreme Court as well, and the case eventually went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and the court had to decide uh, what to do with the American citizens right, because they had captured American ships and were they uh, liable because they were they didn't know they were sailing into an American port. Uh, they thought they were destined for a uh, for a Spanish port. And essentially, what happened is that the the Americans were held liable for their actions because they knew they were. Um, um, involved in, in what was considered at that time by the U.S. government an illegal trade, an overseas trade of, of slaves. Um, so they were not able to recuperate the funds of their ship. Their ships were sold. Uh, the U.S. government then um, recouped that money. Uh, but the Spanish citizens were able to uh, get payment for their slaves because, again, they weren't under the same laws as the U.S. citizens. Now, how does this case help us to understand how attitudes about the slave trade were changing in the early 1800s? Well, again, it, it's kind of interesting when we look at the the time period. So, Spanish is really, or Spanish Florida was really at a, a turning point. Um, so, only a few years after these ships came into Florida, uh, Florida now was was handed over to the United States. Um, and it also uh, helps to kind of highlight uh, the how uh, strict the United States was becoming in regards to uh, slavery and the importation of African slaves. So um, even though slavery was still legal, uh, interstate slave trade was still legal, um, there was sort of a rising tide of, of uh, not necessarily abolitionists. There were certainly abolitionists around, but there were people trying to, to change their attitudes about um, the the uh, how they considered uh, and uh, legally considered, at least, um, uh, a person to be free or a person to be enslaved. So, Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Absolutely. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator of the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Dana St. Clair is author of the book Cracker, the Cracker Culture in Florida History. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com reports, Dana St. Clair is also part of the Great Southern Cracker Roadshow. When I identify someone as a cracker, I'm not referring to them in the general sense as a southerner. I'm referring to them as someone who belongs to an authentic culture that shares cultural traits and traditions and customs that range from everything from architecture to the clothes that they wear, to the foods that they eat, to the songs that they sing. That was Dana St. Clair, Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the City of St. Augustine. St. Clair spoke to me about a collaborative project that is part theater, and part cultural studies. St. Clair and a number of other performers toured the state to exhibit and explain Florida cracker culture. St. Clair told me the name cracker has a variety of uses, both positive and negative, but here he explains how the term only recently became a word people in the state use to describe themselves. 
and it has become an endearing term. And that pretty much changed around the time Jimmy Carter got elected in the mid-'70s or so. It went from a disparaging inner-city term to describe mostly bigoted whites to what it really meant, which was the the uh, the, the settlers of, of the, the Deep South that have embraced these traditional uh, cracker cultural traditions. It, it's interesting. You have cracker rodeos and and cracker literary contests and, and readings and and uh, cracker food festivals and uh, cracker antique shows. Well, the word has become now embraced as an endearing term. St. Clair and other performers got together to create a traveling roadshow called the Great Southern Cracker Roadshow. These performers stand in front of a set that resembles the storefront of an old general store. They tell stories, discuss heritage cooking, as well as perform music. St. Clair told me how the traveling show came together with the help of Janice Owens, who herself also writes about cracker cooking. I noticed that in the the 40 or so programs that I, I did over the course of a year, I noticed that the audiences were growing. And then when Janice and I did this, we sat down, we talked about it, and we decided that, you know, we needed to throw some things together, you know, put cracker on the on the road. So uh, I started to design it and produce it, and we've played you know, to a thousand people in St. Augustine to, you know, a couple of thousand down in Fort Pierce, Sunrise. So there's a great deal of interest in the cracker culture, especially to folks who are moving into the South from the North or from anywhere. They're, they want to know more about the Southern way of life, the the cracker heritage. So recognizing that there was an audience for it and also recognizing that we had an obligation to tell the story and share the culture. We developed the program and and produced it, and now it travels intermittently around the southeast. Theater performance like this is a novel way to bring attention to history and culture. And you might be familiar with examples of reenactments and living history performers who themselves perform as historic figures from the past. The Cracker Roadshow is different from those styles of performance. St. Clair tells me where the inspiration for the Roadshow came from. There was a template, and I borrowed shamelessly from Garrison Keller's uh, Prairie Home Companion. It was important for us to, to tell the story rather than lecturing audiences on the cracker culture and food preparation and and architecture rather than it being a a very dry uh, uh, presentation. We scripted the program in such a way that it it has lots of energy and there's musical overlaps and interludes and guests are coming out of the screen door and slamming it and, you know, celebrity folk coming out of the outhouse. And, you know, it's a uh, it's not vaudeville, uh, but, you know, it's definitely a traveling sideshow. We have the snake oil salesman and everything just to create 
some transitions and entertainment, but the whole cracker culture uh, script and what it is that we're trying to do, which is bringing the cracker culture to as many people as possible. That was Dana St. Clair, and I'm Robert Casanella with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Be sure to meet us here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.